And now it's time for Rod and Real Radio with your hosts, Hop Along John Cassidy, fresh and saltwater expert angler Stan Vanderberg, and all around outdoors fishing and hunting enthusiast Wendy Toshihara. If you love the outdoors, enjoy salt or freshwater fishing, this is the show for you. We'll cover most all of the fishing tournaments and events with special reports while providing you with the information you need as to how and where to experience the best fishing opportunities in Southern California, Baja, Alaska, or just about anywhere the fish are biting. We have some fantastic guests and reports lined up for you this evening, so sit back, relax, and get ready for the fastest two hours in radio. It's all right here, right now, on Rod and Reel Radio, the best stop on your radio dial for all the information you need for fishing opportunities all over the United States. Now here's your host, Hop Along, John Cassidy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another Sunday edition of Rod and Reel Radio. I am, again, not your underfished host, Hopalong John Cassidy. I am Ben Harvey, the local producer. Unfortunately, due to the ongoing situation at the radio station, we will be unable to be live again this week. So, John asked me to put together a couple of his favorite interviews from years past. Again, for the latest updates, check out our Facebook page. Just look up Rod and Reel Radio on Facebook. Or go to roddenreelradio.com for the link. So, without further ado, let's get the show started. Stan and Wendy, without ado, I've been trying to get this guest on for a long time because he is such a source of information on fishing out here on the West Coast, fishing California, fishing around the world, techniques, tackles, bringing young people into this sport. It's my pleasure to introduce our listening audience to Mike Ferrier. Mike, welcome to Ron Real Radio. Well, thank you, John. That's a wonderful introduction. And Wendy, how in the world have you been? I haven't talked to you in ages. Hope you're doing I'm well. I'm wonderful, and, uh, and congratulations. It's so nice to hear from you. Thank you. And Stan, as well, I haven't uh, had the pleasure of meeting you, I don't believe, before, but I enjoy being with you guys tonight. And welcome. after an introduction like that, I, I don't know where to start except uh, when John and I talked the other day about coming on the radio. We talked about uh, California's history and its role in uh, the segment of the sport. Let's call it as big game fishing. And I, I thought that you know that would be an interesting topic. I know that we have a lot of knowledgeable listeners out there, uh, but you know this has been a passion of mine for over 40 years. And aside from being historian at the IGFA, John, I'm also historian for the Tuna Club for the past 25 years, and that's really the birthplace of big game fishing. So. When I came into that organization, already being a, a historian and a collector, I was a kid in a candy shop, if you will. It, it just virtually everything that started in California started with the Tuna Club. Well, tell us about the Tuna Club, Mike, because a lot of people, they hear the Tuna Club. Where was it located? How was it organized? And, and what was sort of like the mission statement of the club when they first organized? Well, the mission statement to go backwards on you was fair play to game fishes. And uh, the tuna club resulted um, at the turn of the century. The first tuna at Avalon were actually caught in 1896 by a gentleman, C.P. Morehouse, a uh, Pasadena resident. Uh, but in the following years, 1898, Charles Frederick Holder, uh, the tuna club founder, established the tuna club after he'd caught what he and his friends dubbed the first large one. It was a 183-pound bluefin fine fish. If you'd seen the tackle he used, you just wouldn't believe he could have brought it in. Uh, their goal was to uh, stop the handline fishing, which existed on the West Coast, particularly for any bigger fish, uh, 
black sea bass, uh, tuna were being caught by hand line, and there was some commercial activity toward them at that time, though the nets hadn't come. But Holder had a lot of experience on the East Coast. His father was the first curator of the Natural History Museum in New York City. He knew firsthand how uh, pressure on the particularly on the pelagic fishes, uh, could bring about their slaughter. And what he didn't like when he first came to Catalina was the men throwing uh, hand lines out and pulling in white sea bass and yellowtail as fast as they cast. You know, each tide, we all know what it's like in Mexico when you see those little school fish get pushed up on the beach by, by the larger game. And uh, that's the way it was then. It must have been great to be here. So he set about to try to bring tackle uh, into Catalina Island, which he claimed to have caught the first yellowtail. Uh, in history on a rod and rail. And secondly, his purpose was to uh, bring together fellows that also appreciated the idea of turning it all into a good sport. The founding of the Tuna Club, after that large fish was caught, uh, did a lot for angling in general. It essentially elevated the sport. It was the first time that people had actually used balanced tackle, requiring the Tuna Club uh, to become an active member. You had to catch a certain size fish, say an over 100-pound tuna, on linen line, 24 thread, which is about a 62-pound test. Uh, at the time, it was very difficult to do because, again, the reels were all straight drive, knuckle busters, spinning backwards. Rods were often two-piece, and, and uh, with a fish that size, you can imagine how many of them were broke trying to lift these things. So at any rate, what we did was established uh, these rules, and so you became a member by skill, uh, not by the quantity of fish you brought back, but uh, rather your ability to catch them at a certain size. And it wasn't until 1906 that light tackle was introduced in California, uh, but that also was a tuna club design. It uh, uh, came about as a result of the big tuna leaving us for a few years and an influx of yellowfin tuna, which had never been seen in California prior to that year. After these yellowfin came in and everybody switched to the light tackle, eventually in 08, we even had ultralight tackle, 3.6 tackle, became in vogue. Suddenly the big guys came back for some years. So the tuna club now had light and tackle and heavy tackle to use, so it gave them a number of more buttons. And, of course, we started recognizing marlin, which we caught here uh, before anyone else in the world on rod and reel in 1903, and broadbill swordfish in 1913, uh, the first to be captured at Catalina Island as well. Uh, and uh, so to this day, we remain true to those uh, angling rules. we also very proud of the fact that uh, not only were they first, but they were adopted by legitimate angling clubs all over the world. I'm very much involved uh, with the IGFA history as well and uh, had proven that California actually wrote the first rules that all of this adopted, including much of the IGFA. Mike, let's. Uh, I know Stan Whitty and I just have a bunch of questions just from... Uh, what uh, you have uh, just said. So let me uh, ask the first questions. Uh, uh, with the the tuna that were coming in, were they, the first tuna that were coming in, were they bluefin, were they albacore, and then when you say the bigger tuna, were those the yellowfin, or was it vice versa, or was the species mixed, or what, what exactly was happening in those early years? Well, in chronological order, uh, albacore have always been here and were part of the sport before the tuna club uh, was founded. They, they were at the island. But it was only bluefin 
that came in great numbers that allowed the tuna club members to become active. That, that was uh, that was the required fish. They used to chase schools of uh, flying fish. In fact, their first name uh, was called leaping tuna. And tuna itself originated at Catalina Island by uh, the oldest resident there, uh, a fellow nicknamed Mexican Joe, the oldest resident, as I say. And he sort of uh, used the name that the East Coast had, the Tunai and, and Tunas and other names, and sort of just scrambled it up and simplified it, called it Tuna, which name stuck and is used, of course, and recognized all over the world at this point. Indeed. Yellowfin didn't come in until 1906. And when they came in, they were small. They were school-sized fish, uh, eventually coming up into the 50-pound range by around 1907 and 8. Uh, but it was all bluefin. That was, the, that was the whole business when the club was founded. You know, Mike, the, the yellowfin originally had the name, I think, Allison Tuna. And Do you know how they That's got right. that name and how it just then just kind of settled out to be yellowfin? Well, Allison, if I remember right, was partly due to the name of the person who caught some of the first large ones. And, you know, they have the, the very large uh, uh, fins, handle fins, you know, re reaching back toward the tail section. Uh, Allison was used until the 1950s, uh, very commonly used. And then it, it uh, gave way to just the yellow fin. We started naming their, the fishes, if you, if you look at them, a lot of the, the colors of the fins to sort of aid anglers, so blue fin, you know, as an example, yellow fin, uh, to help distinguish them. In fact, there was a lot of, uh, with smaller blue fin, or smaller yellow fin, rather, I mean, there is a little confusion sometimes between them, and sometimes even albacore, the pectoral fins, can get pretty long. Hey, Mike, we got to take a break right now. Uh, can you stay over for a couple more segments so we can talk a little well, more to, of the history of tuna fishing here on the West Coast? Yeah, I got a love couple of questions here. Oh, for uh, sure. Hey, that's Stan Vandenberg. Wendy Toshahar is with us. Um, hop along, John Cassidy. We are broadcasting to you live from Angler's Arsenal in La Mesa, California. We have Mr. Mike Ferrier. He is with the IGFA. He is the historian for the IGFA, but he is a whole lot more than that. We're talking about the history of tuna here on the West Coast. Got to take a break right now, but we'll be right back after these messages. Hi, Roland Martin here. I'd like to tell you a little about Gary Yamamoto and the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company. It all started with an idea, then a dream, and in 1983, the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company was formed. If you know Gary Yamamoto like I do, and I've known him since 1983, you know he has a passionate love for the sport of fishing. That love is only matched by his obsession to design and produce the highest quality soft plastic fishing lures on the market today. Every bait Gary makes is inspected by hand. Today, more than 2.5 million packages of bait are shipped worldwide. On behalf of Gary and his staff, he wants to thank his customers for thinking so highly of his products and wishing you the great success at the sport of fishing. Whether you fish for fun or fish the tournament circuits like I do, you'll honor Gary for making Gary Yamamoto custom baits a key part of your fishing experience. Take it from me, Roland Martin. When I'm in need of a go-to bait, my first choice is a Gary Yamamoto custom bait. Turner's Outdoorsman, California's number one fishing, hunting, and shooting sports retailer, now has 28 locations. Turner's is your one-stop shop for fishing tackle, hunting gear, and everything for shooting sports. Turner's offers a full selection and unmatched prices on the gear you need. Whether you're planning a fishing trip with the family or chasing giant tuna, Turner's highly skilled staff will make sure 
you have the gear for your next adventure. Visit Turners.com to find a Turner store near you and be sure to join the Turners Discount Club to get weekly ads and specials right to your inbox. Turner's Outdoorsman, your one-stop shop for all your fishing needs. Hi, this is Lori Heath. You may know me from some of the fishing boats out of San Diego. I want to talk to you about something that's really close to my heart. Did you know that when you donate blood, you're not only helping others, you're also helping yourself. Donating blood lowers the risk of heart attacks in men by more than 70%, lowers the risk of developing cancer, and helps you maintain a healthy liver. So donate blood to help someone else and to help yourself. If you can't donate, you can still make a difference with the financial gift. It's the best way to give back. Hook, line, and sinker. And for more information and to make a financial donation or an appointment, visit sandiegobloodbank.org. That's the sandiegobloodbank.org. And just to let you know, I'm also a blood donor. Gotta love California in the summer. Just remember, COVID is still with us. So if you're going to the water, plan ahead. Follow local public health guidelines and make sure everyone wears a life jacket. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Hey, and welcome back to Rod and Reel Radio. I'm Hopalong John Cassidy. We are talking with Mike Ferrier, historian for the International Fish and Game Commission. Stan Vandenberg's with me. Wendy Toshahar is also with us. We're talking about the history of big tuna fishing on the West Coast. And, Mike, Stan had a question for you. Stan, you want to take it away? Well, you know, I had friends that were in the tuna club back when. and uh, I mean, I, I grew up fishing the ocean and out here with my dad, and mostly the half-day stuff, and then the overnighters to the island. And once in the blue moon, we'd see the tuna coming in in between the islands there, and uh, mostly it would be the albacore. But, I mean, there were, there were stories of guys catching the albacore off the piers back when, too, but I didn't get a chance for that, a lot of bonita, whatever else. But I know that we'd had, oh, shoot, it was about the late 80s or early 90s uh, that, that one year where the big bluefin, that eight and 900-pound stuff, came in here uh, and running around the uh, Catalina and, and in between the islands. I actually got to see one of them up close and personal, actually two of them, uh, while we were fishing a Marlin sweepstakes tournament over there, they they jumped right out of the water right next to our boat, and we turned away because that wouldn't have been a good thing to hook up in a Marlin tournament. But is that was that the style fish that the Marlin, I mean the uh, tuna club was targeting that really big bluefin? No, you know they're more an anomaly than than the, than the regular, as you probably know. Our California record was set by a tuna club number a 251 pound bluefin in 1899. Uh, bluefin that cruise through here that, of that size, often they're deep, according to scientists. They don't often surface, uh, and uh, while they have been caught by commercial boats, that particular year I remember very well, and that was uh, that was pretty outstanding. Yeah. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk of it. There were members who had hooked some uh, one battle for 14 hours before it uh, was found floating by the crossing ferry. Uh, that may have been that size, but you know they're pretty rare, uh, as we know. They're, who knows how many they really are? Because we know so little about their travels. But most tuna do travel deep. Uh, they don't always surface on our coasts. We, in the, in the 
recent years, we seem to have to bait them up to even get them to come up to the surface. We do see some breakers, but also about in that time, there was a good run of uh, decent bluefin about uh, 90 miles south of us here, and we had a lot of 100-pounders in that mix. And I can remember days out there during those years where you could see acres and acres of fish. Uh, some of the party boats, I remember having counts of over 100 big bluefin. I don't know if you remember that, but they, you know, they do come through. They're not all gone. It's just a matter of them coming in. Currents have a tremendous uh, play in how their activity comes. I, I have actually caught bluefin tuna at the 60-mile bank, straight on the bottom, catching rockfish. Uh, it's 600 feet deep hmm. with a diamond jig. So, in December. So we don't really know, you know, a lot about these fish or what their habits are. But even when we meter them today. Uh, and they're down deep. Uh, remember, it's already cold there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they they don't really care about the temperature. It's the bait fish that they chase that care about the temperature because that's the cycle of life. They need to be up in the oxygenated area where they can pick up uh, photoplankton and the like to eat. You know? So that's uh, that's all we know about them. <laughs> I think There's a lot we don't. They eat a lot of squid and, and uh, yeah. down Mike, deep. tell us a little yeah. bit about the tackle. You mentioned that when the tuna club uh, came into existence uh, they didn't have the type of tackle to handle these fish had the tackle uh, been already starting to evolve on the east coast with the uh, the big bluefin fishery that they had back there or did uh, did these guys start going back to the manufacturers and saying hey we need this we need this and the manufacturers responded to it well, that, that's an interesting question, but first off, let me set the stage. There were no bluefin caught on rod and reel on the East Coast until after the tuna club had been catching Oh, bluefin. no kidding. Really? That was a later event, right? That was much later, in fact. Uh, Zane Gray's record, if you remember him having one up there, I think that was 1918 or something, was a big piece of history. Uh, the fellow, Lori Mitchell, who became his fishing companion almost for life, uh, was working as a guide at that time. Lori had the record before him. So it's a relatively new fishery because of the tack. So what happened uh, was a great American story in the in the Kentucky area. There were people who developed a beautiful casting reel. They they put the reel on top of the rod, and the Kentucky reel was born and allowed us to throw baits long distances. We went to the East Coast when the stripers emerged uh, shortly before the Civil War as a big game fish. Developed casting reels of the same method on the top of the reel. Uh, and then we could cast long distances out offshore with that and, and capture these fish. When the Florida tarpon were discovered in the 1880s, it was the same model, and that set the standard. There were two primary makers at that time, Edward and Julius Baumhoff, dominated the market. And when the California tuna were discovered uh, in the 1890s, those reels were used, just the tarpon reels were used uh, for the first captures. Uh, we did have them build them up a little bit. So instead of the four sizes and, and uh, the five, we actually had a few six O's made, uh, and that was the extent of it. But Americans set the stage for the world to follow with regards to the over-reel. And uh, the only exception to that were the British, who maintained fishing under-reels uh, well into the 30s and even into the 40s. It's some beautiful under-reels, but uh, overall, the, the Western style won out. Michael, if, as, a, as a collector, if you had one of those Kentucky reels right now, let's say the 6 ot, what would that reel be valued at? Well, um, first off, um, the Kentucky reel was for freshwater. I, I was trying to give you the, the oh. scenario of how it got to the ocean. 
Um, and secondly, not, not to say they didn't make some. I, I do have some meek saltwater reels, but they were very rare. Um, and, and then secondly, I'm a collector and not a dealer, so I'm always hesitant to put prices on uh, on items. There are a number of people who are involved in, in uh, uh, you know, collecting tackle for sale, and those fellows are all the ones that are up on the pricing. Uh, and there's a lot of very good ones in town. But uh, for me, it's it's really just having it. I've paid little. I've been given some, and I've paid a lot for others. So for me, it, it's not uh, not not the kind of thing I like to put an exact value on. I think that uh, beauty's in the eyes of the beholder, if you will. Well, I guess now the question is, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did the reel come first? Did the rod come first? Or did they uh, evolve <laughs> simultaneously? <laughs> Well, of course, the rod came first. Uh, you know, you can't hold a reel and operate it. And reels are relatively new. Uh, our concept of Western fishing, we could trace back to the English, who uh, at the time of Dame Juliana or, or even later, uh, Walton, when we understand fishing, we, we first referred to the reel as a winch. And it was little more than a, a school to gather the loose line on. But the early days, you, you pretty much tied the line onto the tip of your pole. And even in this country, old cane poles were used without reels for some time into the, you know, past the Depression era. Even. So the reel is, uh, the reel is the latecomer. Um, and it's, uh, progressive is something that I try to detail in my collection. And it, uh, it's a wonderful story of ingenuity and, and, uh, beautiful handmade objects. For, for salt water, uh, at the time when the tuna club came in, uh, the most popular reel was the Julius Baumhoff. It's machined like a watch. It would just turn, and the handle will continue to spin like no reel made today, I would dare say. Mm-hmm. No reel was able to get the free spool it contained, but then again, it had no braking system other than a leather pad. <laughs> and once the fish took the line out, you pressed against the spool, oh, and uh, that was it, and you better get that hand out of the way. So our tuna club, for example, our first location was at the Hotel Metropole before we built the clubhouse, and we had a section of the porch called the Tuna Hospital, where people had dislocated shoulders and beaten up hands, broken fingers, and the like, uh, from trying to wrestle with these monsters with the tackle that they had at the day. But the Tuna Club was also where the first drag systems for saltwater reels were really developed, where they were really the, the true proving grounds, where Californian Francis were able to develop the an external drag that could be adjusted with a screwdriver, not too practical when you're fighting, but nonetheless, it gave uh, gave the angler a lot of advantage. Uh, one of the biggest uh, leaps came from William Boshin, who uh, was a gentleman from New York City that came out to fish in California every year. He was the first man to ever catch a broadbill swordfish on a rod and reel. Really? And he came up with a multiple-disc clutch design and the star drag apparatus that really brought fishing into the you know, you might say the same uh, for the large game fish and, and prove that anything could be taken if you had the right tackle. My gosh, well, you know, we, we've given everyone a quick overview of the rod and the reel, and you mentioned just briefly the line. So obviously there had to have been an evolution in, in fishing line, and then also <laughs> how about fishing hooks? Well, of course, we, as with all, you know, I, I would say from ancient times, which is a study I also enjoy, and, and in fact, I'm underway on doing research in China and Egypt, some of the earliest uh, areas to ever uh, practice the uh, angling as a sport. You'll find that, uh, in, as well as even Native American Indians, you'll find that the hooks were circle, which we've gone back to today. Uh, circle hooks have proved to be 
one of the, one of the finest ways to catch and hold a fish that there is. So while they may have been a, of shell and stone or wood or many different types of materials and these beautiful light laser sharpened instruments we get today are great. The shape has been somewhat the same, uh, but the J is quickly being replaced to the circle just like it used to be. Uh, lines, again, lines came in every sort. Uh, horsehair lines were popular in medieval Europe. Uh, silk lines were popular uh, in China. Uh, over time, uh, we developed the highest quality of linen lines for fishing. We typically had the, the linen work, the, uh, the breakdown of the plant uh, was done in Belgium or in Ireland for the finest quality. And then we had long strands here in America. The Cuddyhunk was uh, one of the most famous Ashaway line in twine. And those, once they became castable and, and, uh, and so forth, were, were the accepted line. But they have a great deal of friction because they have a lot of fibers attached. So we still fish them at the tuna club. Uh, we're not allowed to fish monofilament at many of our competitions. So we either fish uh, with the old line or Dacron line. Dacron we find to be you know, pretty smooth and a pretty good uh, killing line. But again, it's not, uh, it's not invisible in the water, is it? But uh, we are allowed to use fluorocarbon leaders and the like. But... Uh, we still, as I say, adhere to a lot of our old rules. Hey, we are speaking with Mike Ferrier. He is the historian for the International Fish and Game Commission. Uh, we're talking a little bit about the history of big tuna fishing off our West Coast and how actually the West Coast fishermen through the Tuna Club were the innovators of big fish fishing techniques uh, throughout the world. Mike, uh, we got to take a break right now. Do you think we can ask you to stay over one more segment with us? Well, sure. I'd love to. Love to All talk right, more Mike Barriers with us. Stan Vandenberg, Wendy Toshihara. I'm Hopalong John Cassidy. You've got Rod and Reel Radio on AM540. We'll be right back after these messages. Hi. This is John, and I'd like to invite you to the new Angler's Arsenal location in Lakeside, California. We put together a staff of experts that will help you find the tackle and gear you need at a price you can afford. We carry all the major brands, and if you need custom work done, we can do that for you with both rods and reels. How about servicing your old equipment? No problem. We can do it quickly, easily, at a price you can afford. We also do custom hand-poured plastics through Western Plastics. Design the lure of your dreams and catch the fish that have been getting away. So come and visit us in Lakeside. We're at 12255 Woodside Avenue. Or you can visit us at anglersarsenal.com. If you need to call us, we're at 619-466-8355. See you there. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel specially heat treated to make them light and extra strong but not brittle. The Gamakatsu sharpening process is the most modern in the world and results in a perfectly conical point that is unequaled in sharpness. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing, drop shot, extra wide gap, worm hooks, finesse wide gap, and a lot more. Gamakatsu has a hook for whatever style of fishing you want to do. Don't waste your time on a cheap hook. Ask for Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. There's nothing more peaceful than fishing. Just me, my pole, and some bait. Oh, and my life jacket, of course. I like fish, but I don't want to end up at the bottom of the water with them. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. 
Are you looking for a quality fishing experience out of Cabo San Lucas for you, your family, and friends, but are a little set back with what charter company to choose? We urge you to use American and family-owned Lands End Charters. Lands End Charters offers the passengers affordable and all-inclusive services on a variety of vessels and trips. Fish with the latest of fishing gear while experiencing the hospitality of a longtime owned family business. Go to LensandCharters.com to see all of their vessels and amenities available. Call Cobble Greg or Jenny at 800-281-5778 when you're ready for an action-packed Cabo fishing experience. Hey everybody, this is a message for our listeners from a new Baja Magic Lodge at Cedros Island. Cedros Outdoor Adventures wants to make your dream of fishing Cedros Island a reality. Want to go after giant calicos or yellowtail with the best Cedros Island fishing organization, but you just don't know who to contact? Then give Cedros Outdoor Adventures a call at 619-793-5419, or even better yet, log on to their informative website at cedrosoutdooradventures.com. There you can visit their trip calendar and schedule a trip that's convenient for you. Once again, the phone number is 619-793-5419 or their website of cedrosoutdooradventures.com. Rod Real Radio is brought to you by BajaBound.com Insurance Services. Are you driving to Mexico? You can buy and print out your Mexican auto insurance policy online in the convenience of your own home or office in minutes now with BajaBound.com's easy-to-use website. After printing your auto insurance, check out the BajaBound.com site. There, too, you will find great travel tips and information to help you get the most out of your next road trip south of the border. So this is an important fact to remember. Use BajaBound.com. It's the easiest way to find and get Mexican auto insurance. If you're serious about your fishing, choosing the right tackle is one of the most important decisions you'll ever make. Iserline makes premium fishing lines including monofilament, Dacron, Spectra, fluorocarbon, battle-tested harnesses, and top angler-tested Iserline tools and accessories. Iserline premium fishing products are created to provide you with the ultimate in strength, dependability, durability, high abrasion resistance, low stretch, and high quality. All Iserline products are 100% guaranteed against manufacturing defects. You just can't buy better value. Iserline will replace or repair at their option. No questions asked if you're not pleased with any of their product. Catch what you've been missing. Quality guaranteed. Rod and Reel Radio is now available as a podcast you can subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Get notified as soon as new episodes are available. Or go back and listen to our past shows. Browse through all of our archive shows at roddenreelradio.com slash archives and click the subscribe button to get started listening now. Southern California, welcome back to Rod and Reel Radio. I'm your host, Hopalong John Cassidy. With me is Stan Vandenberg, the voice of one 800 bass boat. Wendy Toshahara, she is the industry rep uh, for many great products, including Iserline. And we are talking with Mike Ferrer. He is the historian for the International Fish and Game Commission, among other things. And you know, a lot of times I use this phrase, we're just scratching the surface on uh, the information that uh, our guests have. But, Stan, I've got to tell you, we we are we haven't even started scratching yet. Uh, you know, they use, they're still using linen line. I think that's the coolest thing. <laughs> it would be fun to join a club just to go Thanks, do that. It, it is a little difficult. And, and, you know, we even have an angling tournament that we just used antique tackle with, uh, everything pre-1940. 
Really? Call that intake. Yeah, so we you, do it every you year. pull out the so Bonhoeffers we, and get a, a thicker piece of, of leather and go burn the thumb? Well, you know, 1940 had some pretty sophisticated drag systems, to be honest with you. So, you know, we, that that's not too much the problem. The bamboo sticks are the ones that usually break on a marlin. Uh, that's that's part of the problem we have, but uh, we still use the linen. We'll take it off and you know wind it, clean it, dry it, and what have you to prepare for the next day. So, so do you have, it's a lot of fun. You have people. Are, I mean, it's, you can still find guys that know how to actually put a bamboo rod together and make them pretty strong. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have them custom made? Or are you using the old ones and still just rewrapping them and putting the old yeah. guides on them and? Rip. We do both. We do both. Sometimes, uh, depending on the age of the, the rod, you know, if they're pre-World War One, those are the times that you see the multiple small wraps on. Then they were they usually had a more inferior glue system, so we don't usually touch those. But once you get up uh, into the 20s, you'll find that the, uh, the, the adhesives used were superior, and they've still hold together. Some of them, uh, like the Fenor Company and Baumhoff and, and other uh, names, you'll find that these rods are, are still flexible. It's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Shaver rods uh, made in California, if you can find them. Home rods uh, made in California. So many of them still do work. They just need cleaning up, a little rewrapping. Uh, they used to use a lot of inferior wraps on the guides, you know, things even like linen itself or cotton or silk. So we just rewrap them, refinish them, and you find that they're, they still work pretty well. Well, they had a real seat and the guides on both sides of the rods because they would take a set. <laughs> That's right. And uh, that's what you, you had, yeah, exactly. had to turn them over and use the other side after you were done. That's right. That's right. And if you didn't do that pretty often, then that set would stay. And, uh, you know, the way you got it out was hung it in the rafters. And most of, uh, if any of the folks have old rods and they have a deep set on them and they've been leaning up for a while, then the best way to do that is tag them off uh, on a beam somehow and let them hang. And, and uh, hopefully they'll retain to their shape. Mike, a, a, gentleman, a gentleman I had a chance to know before he passed away, a fellow by the name of Lou Childries, he, after World War II, was instrumental in bringing a lot of bamboo rods into the United States, and he was much revered in Japan because right after the war, it, there was no industry there at all, and here he was coming along asking them to make a product to ship to the United States. And we know that bamboo has been very prized on the commercial tuna boats when they were uh, just hauling in uh, 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 fish by hand. Did this bamboo, did it come from Japan? Uh, uh, was it a product out of the commercial tuning, tuna fleet? Uh, uh, how did that come about? No, usually this is much more select. Uh, it's Tonkin, uh, often Chinese, and some Calcutta, uh, as it implies from India. It's a much finer select grade. They're they're cut in strips, and uh, you can use some down to four-sided, and some are eight. Uh, six is the most common, but they're cut into triangular strips and fit back together. Rather precise uh, piece of work because they have to maintain a taper as well. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're excellent. But we had a lot of great rod makers in California. One, Roy Shaver, who experimented with laminated woods, using everything from black palm to hickory in combinations. And, uh, and they were excellent rods. And later really? picked up uh, by Tycoon, uh, which made the big HRH Bimini King rods. Uh, he followed suit with the other laminated rods. So just before the fiberglass came in to being in the mid-50s, uh, really rods were still taking off in terms of their technology. Uh, the wood rods were so, and the reels. Uh, you know they have they have come so far. Uh, again, my collection is uh, I have a pretty extensive collection of, of big game reels, probably 200 plus, uh, 
of uh, handmade ones from some very rare ones that uh, were owned by Hemingway. I think some of the only Hemingway tackle known exist, and Zane Gray and a number of other you know pioneers. Uh, but the mostly interesting thing that I love is uh, is collecting the you know the evolution of the reel, if you will, showing the earliest drag systems up to up to the most modern. And you find that things haven't changed so much. Another Californian uh, tuna club member, anyway, he was actually an Englishman. Uh, had developed the first two-speed reel all the way back in 1922, wow. commercially available in 24. So there haven't been a lot of uh, great innovations, um, you know, since those days. The, the smartest uh, uh, technology, I think, goes into the uh, materials used to make them lighter and lighter weight. Mike, uh, the Tuna Club had a had a uh, a great run, uh, 1898 to 1999, but. With all the interest that there is in tuna fishing out here on the coast and all the great tuna fishermen that there are out there, Stan, I know you can probably name uh, dozens of them uh, just right here. What happened to the tuna club? The tuna club is still going very strong. Our main fish today is marlin, striped marlin, uh, and we you know, we fish those, and that's uh, that's one of our qualifying fish for active membership. We have tuna, marlin, and broadbill swordfish, and we still pull a few broadbill in, too. It's uh, they're they're certainly around. It, it's just a different type of fishing, and, and uh, but we still are very successful in it. But uh, marlin make up the vast majority, as you know. The big tuna no longer seem to come through. Uh, with few exceptions. Well, right. I think some, sometimes, you know, I don't know what the, the currents were back then, uh, and because that's all cyclical, it all changes, the bottoms change and currents change and things mm-hmm. just change out there. Uh, You're absolutely right. And when the currents change, it changes the food source. When the food's not there, they aren't here. They that's follow exactly food. Right. They have to live on on something. That's They're a, not going to go with food. Right. It's the same with all the all the you know pelagic fishes we chase. They eat for a living. That's all you can say about them. And if it's not there, they're going elsewhere. And uh, uh, we are involved in a, a lot of interesting programs with the IGFA. We've been doing a satellite tag release uh, program on marlin. Uh, most of them are blacks and blues from different places, but it, it's sort of bearing out. You know what what we feel about this having to have food to stay uh, theory, and that is that uh, when we finished at some of these tournaments, like the HWT, when we first put it in, we had one that went 2,600 miles in a very short time, one that stayed home, and everybody else went in different directions. So they're not following a pack or a season per se; they're really following food. And, Mike, uh, I, I like I like to think myself as not being that old, but I do remember a time when you could fish for tuna in the Catalina Channel. And now that that is just something that doesn't happen. Some people say pollution. Some people say military activity with monitoring equipment and, and, and activities that the military does out there. Is it just a cyclical thing? Because if we're, if we're talking about, you know, tuna from 1889 to today, when you – in the real scope of things in this world, uh, a hundred-year period or so—that's not that long of a period, and some cycles go longer than that. That's true. Well, there has been an intense pressure on them by commercial interests. We all know that, but they're a highly migratory species. They cross oceans, and they're in great numbers in certain areas. The bluefin, we know, are uh, their biomass is suppressed, and that—that's just bad news. But they pop up in places like uh, New Zealand. I was a member of the Bay of Islands uh, Swordfish Club for years, and bluefin weren't a common 
item, but now they're in the South. Uh, they're thick as thieves, and New World Records are coming out all the time. Yeah, big, so big, it's big hard fish. To say. Yeah, hard to say Huge what fish. you know what they do, but believe me, if the, if the right conditions existed, the fish would be up banging up against your boat. Uh, I mean, that's just the way it is. You can still go places today and find that kind of that kind of uh, fishing. You know, Magdalena Bay in the fall for marlin, for example. Um, the fact is that they just need the right conditions to be here, and, and uh, we don't know enough about the scientific requirements uh, to this day. That's why science is so important to us at the IGFA, and we're, we're doing a lot to try to research these, these exact issues because uh, well, look at it's the, all mystery. Look at the, the bluefin that we used to have at Guadalupe Island down below. That was a fishery that was always there. Uh, and they had big ones down there. That three and two and three hundred pound fish would be out of the water, and you're watching that one jump with the, the twenty and thirty pounders at the same time. Uh, oh, we sure. never. Well, sure. we did hook them. A friend of mine got a two hundred and sixty nine pounder out of it. I know, and lost bigger fish on a bridal yellowtail before. Yeah, that. You know, I mean there, there are monsters here, but now that fishery has completely changed. Uh, the sea lions and others that have moved in in bigger numbers are, have been followed by the white sharks. Uh, whites have been in there in great numbers. And the tuna have now turned to yellowfin, and there's some pretty good ones in there at that. I, but it's I know, a completely different fishery. The water's just changed. Well, and yeah, we, the, the current, well, that's just an island out there and over a thousand feet of water, and the, the currents that wash up against that bring all kinds of feed in. Uh, that's right. And it, and it's that's a, right. Well, it no. creates its own weather and everything else out there. That you is, uh, I've been lucky to fish there quite a bit, and it's a most fascinating place. But you're right. The, the bluefin, which was always a standard, we used to kind of kid each other to try to race down there first and see who could get it early in the year. Uh, but that's not a sure thing anymore. But there are some fine, fine yellowfin there. But uh, again, the white shark population is huge, indicating that the mammals have returned. And uh, you know, that's, uh, that's well, I caught bluefin there. Uh, two years ago, when it was not closed, uh, I ended up catching uh, some bluefin down there. It's the first bluefin we've caught in that arena for many years. That's great. Uh, well, good for you. you got, <laughs> if you missed any of the interview, get on RoddenReelRadio.com. Go to the archives page, and about 48 hours from now, this interview will be on there. And, and why aren't you listening to the show? You know, this is uh, great information, and and, you know, Mike Ferrier is just a wealth of, of knowledge when it comes to fishing. Uh, Mike, we, we just, just don't have time to talk about everything. I'm going to have to have you come back. But if people want to ask you questions or uh, they want to know about tackle or, or the history of the tuna industry or tuna fishing here through the uh, tuna club, how's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, thank you for that. That's very nice. One is the, the tuna club book that you said you had in your possession. Uh, yes. That can be obtained, and that's got a, a lot of information about the history of uh, sport fishing in Southern California. I don't think there's any other volume like that. This was a privately printed uh, uh, book uh, just for the Tuna Club, and I have donated all of uh, my work toward the Tuna Club Foundation, which benefits uh, people over at uh, the island, everything from uh, daycare to Jaws of Life for the Harbor thing. So it would be very, very nice if anybody wanted to buy that, the uh, Tuna Club at Catalinas.com. You can reach me specifically about any tackle questions or items you have. Uh, I'll try to help you the best I can with it. You can reach me on MikeFerrierAntiqueTackle.com. That's F-A-R-R-I-O-R. 
And then if you are interested in, in uh, helping uh, the IGFA, I'm also a trustee and in charge of the representatives. We have about 320 reps in, in 90 countries. Uh, and if you're interested in learning about fishing in general and want to be a part of the most active organization, uh, we're uh, just as strictly a service nonprofit, but a, a wealth of information, too. I'd ask you to look at joining the IGFA. Uh, you can do that at the same thing by IGFA.com. I'm also going to be at the Fred Hall shows, uh, both in Del Mar and uh, in Long Beach, and uh, in there to talk to anybody or uh, answer any questions, or if you have something you want to bring in and have me look at uh, in the way of old tackle, I'd be really happy to do that for you. No charge. Uh, sounds great. Mike, I, I appreciate so much you giving up some of your Sunday night. All right, okay. you're on Rod and Real Radio Thank on you. AM540. We'll be back right after these messages. Turner's Outdoorsman, California's number one fishing, hunting, and shooting sports retailer, now has 28 locations. Turner's is your one-stop shop for fishing tackle, hunting gear, and everything for shooting sports. Turner's offers a full selection and unmatched prices on the gear you need. Whether you're planning a fishing trip with the family or chasing giant tuna, Turner's highly skilled staff will make sure you have the gear for your next adventure. Visit turners.com to find a Turner store near you and be sure to join the Turner's Discount Club to get weekly ads and specials right to your inbox. Turner's Outdoorsman, your one-stop shop for all your fishing needs. Hi, Roland Martin here. I'd like to tell you a little about Gary Yamamoto and the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company. It all started with an idea, then a dream, and in 1983, the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company was formed. If you know Gary Yamamoto like I do, and I've known him since 1983, you know he has a passionate love for the sport of fishing. That love is only matched by his obsession to design and produce the highest quality self-passed fishing lures on the market today. Every bait Gary makes is inspected by hand. Today, more than 2.5 million packages of bait are shipped worldwide. On behalf of Gary and his staff, he wants to thank his customers for thinking so highly of his products and wishing you the great success of the sport of fishing. Whether you fish for fun or fish the tournament circuits like I do, you'll honor Gary for making Gary Yamamoto Custom Baits a key part of your fishing experience. Take it from me, Roland Martin. When I'm in need of a go-to bait, my first choice is a Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait. Hey, bass fishermen. Who do you call for your bass boat insurance? And if you're not calling me at 1-800-BASS-BOAT for your boat insurance, you're probably paying too much and may not have the coverage that you need. In 1974, I developed the Bass Boat Program that is what all the pros use today. The reason? No depreciation or any partial claim for your hull, your big motor, your trolling motor, or your electronics until your boat's 10 years old. That's right, you only pay $250 to get your boat on the water for any partial claim, and we still pay a stated value replacement cost for your boat if you have a total loss. We're the only people in the industry that does that, and that's why we are the choice of the pros. So if you want the best, forget the rest. Just call 1-800-BASSBOAT. Call 1-800-227-7262 or just spell BASSBOAT. 1-800-BASSBOAT. I know there's too many letters, but the T is free and the call's on me. That's 1-800-BASSBOAT, the choice of the pros for BASSBOAT insurance. For more information, log on to 1-800-BASSBOAT.com. Are you looking for a quality fishing experience out of Cobblestone Lucas for you, your family, and friends, but are a little set back? 
with what charter company to choose, we urge you to use American and family-owned Lands and Charters. Lands and Charters offers their passengers affordable and all-inclusive services on a variety of vessels and trips. Fish with the latest of fishing gear while experiencing the hospitality of a long-time-owned family business. Go to LensandCharters.com to see all of their vessels and amenities available. Call Cobble, Greg, or Jenny at 800-281-5778 when you're ready for an action-packed Cabo fishing experience. Hi, this is Lori Heath. You may know me from some of the sports boats out of San Diego. I want to talk to you about something that's really close to my heart, the San Diego Blood Bank. Fishing for a way to make a difference in your community? Consider donating blood or making a financial donation to the San Diego Blood Bank. Your gift will impact medical research, revolutionize how we improve health and treat disease, and most importantly, give the gift of life. But we can't do it without you or without your help. Visit SanDiegoBloodBank.org to make an appointment or to give a financial donation today. It's the best way to give back. And just to let you know, I'm also a blood donor. Stan Vandenberg, Wendy Toshihara, and myself, Hopalong John Cassidy, we want to welcome you to the second hour of Rod and Real Radio. Hey, this is a fellow that I have admired and known for a long time. He was, he was making lures way back when, who knows, Moses was fishing the Red Sea, for all I know. <laughs> He, uh, he built himself one heck of a lure company, and since then, he uh, has also been writing. He wrote for one of the local newspapers out in the Imperial Valley area. Sorry, never got a chance to see any of those, but you can read some of his uh, work now. And a new book that he's produced, Outdoor Tales. Let's welcome to Rod Real Radio, Mr. Al Kalen. Al, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to be on your show. Well, I can't tell you how happy I am to have you, Al. You know, uh, Stan Vandenberg, and let me please introduce you to Wendy Toshihara. Hi. You know, you I may be only in my 50s, but, you know, John and Stan, I sure have my share of feelings in my bag. <laughs> Don't we all? You know, I guess, Al, just to start it off, how can a young kid that grew up uh, in the canals of, uh, you know, Imperial Valley there. Just how did it evolve into what we know today or what we knew at that time as being Kalen Lures? Tell, tell us a little bit about the history of, of how you got to that uh, point in time. Well, I guess the easiest way to explain it is a hobby that kind of ran amok. Uh, I... <laughs> I can agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I've always enjoyed fishing and uh, in, in the outdoors, and uh, I know at an early age uh, uh, at our, our feedlot where we, we fed cattle, we had a stock pond, and I was always fishing in it, seeing what I could fish to catch. And uh, That was the testing ground. A, yep. You know, I, I ordered a uh, uh, sinker mold, and uh, uh, started casting sinkers when I was six, seven, eight years old in the, the backyard uh, using our barbecue to, to melt lead and the, 
dog food can and pointers in the, the sinker molds and trying to sell that door to door and that didn't work. But the, the Salton Sea uh, started blooming and, and the Corvina fishing was fantastic and there was a, a opportunity to start building fishing rigs for the fishermen to, to use uh, with live bait, mainly mud suckers. So I started manufacturing them. I bought the components, I think, when I was about 12 from the herder's catalog, the old catalog that had uh, just about everything a, an outdoorsman could, could ever want. And uh, my grandmother used to drive me around the sea, and uh, I'd stop at all the dealers and had a little display that I'd put the, the leaders on and, and the, the rigs. And um, Then it just... It blossomed from one thing to another. I was trying to find a, a, a wholesale company that would sell to me, but uh, they wouldn't. Uh, I was real interested. There's a, a real popular lure called Fin Fins made by Storm. Yep. And uh, they, they work very well for Corvina. And I, I got to looking at them real close in, the, in a swimming pool. And I could see they had a real tight wiggle. And so I started looking for lures that had tight wiggles. And uh, uh, a lot of the swim baits that were available then had great big tails, and they had a big, slow, floppy wiggle in their tail. And, and uh, I finally found one back in Alabama <clears throat> that uh, had a real thin tail, and it had a tight wiggle. So I ordered some. Lo and behold, they worked fantastic on Corvina. And so I started buying them from this uh, manufacturer back there, and, and uh, he, uh, he'd ship them out to me, and we'd package them and sell them around the sea, and they one one long, and they'd taken over the sales of, of Fin Fins, and that upset the storm company a little bit. Um, but we we continued to, to sell them, and they were very, very popular, and got a phone call one day from the manufacturer, and he said, I hate to tell you this, but I just went bankrupt. And uh, I said, well, where am I going to get my, my swim baits? And he said, well, why don't you get in an airplane and come back here and look at our factory? Maybe you'll buy it. So I just jumped on an airplane and went back, back in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and... Uh, uh, looked at the factory and it was a mess. I couldn't believe that you could make lures with equipment like that. <laughs> but we we agreed upon a, a very cheap price, and I, I uh, phoned one of the local uh, produce companies that were shipping lettuce uh, to that area uh, during that period, and asked them if they had any trucks in the area that could load up a worm squirt in the factory. And uh, they called me back and said, yeah, yeah, there's one there now. And so I gave him the address, and before long he backed up, and there was an old dilapidated forklift in the factory, and we loaded everything up, including the forklift, finally. And uh, uh, I jumped on the airplane, and the truck headed back home, and we got back and unloaded everything, and <clears throat> the fellow that, had the company. He came back for a couple of weeks and helped me set up and get going and taught me how to make plastic and stuff like that. And it just, we started making the swim baits. 
And as we were doing that, and he was telling me, you know, all about how you how you inject plastic lures. He he mentioned that it was very difficult to inject a three color bait, and I said, well, let's think about it. You know, maybe we can come up with a an injection machine that will do that. So we we put our heads together and. Uh, at night, when we finished working, we'd sit around the coffee table and talk about it, and we came up with a, a method of doing it. And at that time, nobody else was injecting a three-colored plastic lure, and we, we came out with what we called the triple threat grub, um, and it was a, a big success. And then we used that same technique for a, a, a finesse worm we, we made called the western worm. And uh, it, we had a little two-inch grub that was extremely popular for crappie fishing. And uh, one thing just led to another, and people would say, well, we, you know, there's, there's a need for this type of lure. So I'd play around and come up with a design, and, and uh, it was fun, you know, really a, a lot of fun during that time uh, designing those lures and in, in you know, in, in order to design them, you, you had to learn a little bit about jewelry making uh, because uh, the molds that you used um, for your prototypes, uh, you can make with jewelry making material. And uh, so I learned to do that. And, uh, we, you know, it just evolved. Yeah, uh, Al, uh, you know, I know the... You know, the, the freshwater stuff and everything was great, and I know we've all used that lures, but tell us a little bit about the evolution of some of the saltwater stuff, especially like the 9-inch the Magambo grub and the big 10-inch twin tail uh, scampi. Now, those are not lures that you'll be using in Alabama or Texas or anything else like that. Where did the need come up for these lures, and how did these lures come about? Well, we I, I like fishing in San Diego Bay, and, and the reason I like that so much is because I'm prone to seasickness. And I mean, I can't even take a bath without adrenaline. And so I, 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 I spent a lot of time in San Diego Bay, you know, fishing and, and really enjoyed it. And... Uh, at the tackle shows, I'd run into uh, the owners of uh, uh, Scampi Lures, Joe Graves and Lori. Right. And uh, we became friends because we were usually in booths next to each other. And, and um, so they would invite me up fishing, and, and we'd go out on the bay and fish. And, and it wasn't long until um, I was using my grubs and catching as many fish as Joe was and Lori well, with their, their scampi tails and um, they were getting to the point where they wanted to retire and so we put our heads together and came up with a business deal and so I, I bought them out and we started manufacturing the scampi twin tails uh, which had been so popular and, and, and I think one of the first hard pla or soft plastic baits that uh, and was on the market commercially in the Southern California area. And uh, they had a great big one, a, a big 10-inch 
uh, tale that uh, was popular in Alaska uh, for for halibut fishing, and so I thought, well, if that works, maybe a, a single tail grub would work, and so I designed one, and uh, it, it was fantastic. And then I made a a, a, a larger grub than our regular five inch. I called it a Mogambo. It was a six inch uh, grub, and that became a real uh, real good producer and. and uh, inshore fishing uh, market. So it just evolved like that. We, we had a lot of customers in Alaska for the halibut uh, uh, bait, our big 10-inch grub, and the scampi devil tails. And, uh, the longline fishermen would use them a lot uh, in season. So it, just one thing led to another, and then we, as we, we started selling across the United States and branching out, uh, you know, we found application for our lures in, in the Gulf and, and then on the East Coast in, in saltwater uh, uses. Well, then, also, did you, uh, besides having the line of plastics, you also had a great line of, uh, uh, of lead heads, and I know probably one of the premier dart heads in the country you you originally came out with it, it was a a great leadhead yeah um, and i i i can uh, say that uh, joe graves was the one that taught me all about that um, uh, he, he the method of of casting them i mean uh, i i came up before we made a deal with scampi i was making a darter head uh, that was uh, very popular, and, and I think the key to that was using real good hooks. Uh, not very many darter heads had good hooks at the time, and the, the black nickel finish was just coming out. And it had a point on it that, you know, you didn't have to sharpen your hooks anymore. And, and, uh, and, and so it was an instant bestseller. Uh, and, but we had these aluminum molds that I was making, uh, to cast those with, and it took a lot of labor. And when uh, Joe Graves um, started helping me with, uh, after we bought the, the Scampi company, he says, you know, you ought, to, you ought to make them like we make them, and our, our lead heads. And he showed me how he did that with a, a method called spin casting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you can make 30 or 40 at a whack. And... Uh, I said, boy, that's, that's pretty neat. So I immediately made a mold uh, for our darter head jigs, and I was producing 60 or 70 uh, every two or three minutes. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you were, so, you were located there in the Imperial Valley. Uh, that's the least likeliest spot that I would think a, a major lure uh, a manufacturer for freshwater would, would locate. Uh, why Why the Imperial Valley, and what kind of facility did you have? Well, I, I'm a farmer, a rancher. Um, we had a feedlot. We, we fed cattle for the market, and uh, the, the cattle prices were not doing well, and uh, we weren't as successful in uh, raising cattle as we were in farming, so we, we quit. Uh, we... we, we closed up the feedlot. So we had this big warehouse that we stored grain in. It was about 12,000 square feet. 
And so as things became, our lures became more popular, we kind of turned that warehouse into a packaging facility and, and, and a manufacturing facility, uh, plus our offices, all inside that, that big warehouse. And uh, so it was just where we lived, you know. Um, I know it sounds kind of funny, but, yeah, we were inside a grain warehouse uh, manufacturing all these things. And, uh, sometimes we were running, you know, 24 hours a day to keep up with orders. Um, <laughs> Al, I remember the uh, first time I met you, uh, you uh, invited me to come up to see your facility. And at th- that time, I was doing Western Plastics. And I thought, yeah, you know, we ran... Uh, uh, a pretty decent operation with uh, four or five uh, 55 gallon drums a month and a hand pour operation. I was thinking, I'm, I'm looking for somewhere to to get uh, my plastic from and uh, maybe uh, I could learn something. And I went and visited you and found out you were blending your own plastics and you had such high volumes that the plastic was coming in in these tanker trucks. You were uh, uh, running uh, uh, so many lures. Well, that, that's that's correct, um, and you know, I <clears throat> I was lucky to the, the person that I bought the company from uh, taught me a lot about uh, what it took to, to make plastic. But one of the one of the problems was that it it uh, uh, smelled uh, the 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 baits from back in in uh, the east of Alabama in that area. That, Sure. Where a lot of a lot of them were made, they had a bad odor to them, and one of, one of the uh, there was an oil that they put in the in the plastic, and um, it it had a kind of a kerosene odor to it, uh, and I thought, man, that's kind of repugnant. And so when we got the the factory set up out here, I started looking for a a source of of this particular oil. Um, and found it and ordered it, and it smelled even worse. <laughs> uh, back in the East, they used uh, um, an oil that was produced in the Gulf that, uh, uh, that was of a, a different type than the oil produced on the, the West Coast with the napoline-based oil. So I had to keep looking, and I ended up with a, a another oil that has no application at all to what the other oils used, but it had a high flash point, which, which we were looking for, and, and it had it was was basically odorless, and so it it gave a good smell to our plastic. It didn't didn't repel fish, and uh, during the time I I know that. Uh, our, our western worms uh, were competing against uh, uh, a lot of products, and uh, uh, they they had a smell that was different, you know. And, and mm-hmm. I think that was the reason that, that they caught fish so well. Well, uh, and uh, just to add to that story, one of the big manufacturers of plastics that I know you would recognize them today. One of the reasons why they first came out with scented lures was to mask that smell that Al is talking about, and that's kind of like uh, the way scented lures uh, got involved. Well, that's where that grapes and, and cherries and cinnamon 
and, and uh, licorice, you know, the anise became famous for because that was the fish attractant. It was just the, the attractant would just block the odor of whatever you were fishing. That's right. Hey, Al, can you stay with us a little bit longer? we got to take a break. Sure. Yeah, we're speaking to uh, Al Kalen. Uh, he's the Kalen from Kalen Lords. I know you all recognize that name. We're going to talk to him uh, a little bit here. I, I want to ask him a little bit about the uh, Salton Sea, and then we're also going to talk to him about his book, Outdoor Tales. So stay tuned. Stan, Wendy, myself, and our special guest, Al Kalen. We'll be back after these messages. Hi, this is John, and I'd like to invite you to the new Angler's Arsenal location in Lakeside, California. We put together a staff of experts that will help you find the tackle and gear you need at a price you can afford. We carry all the major brands. And if you need custom work done, we can do that for you with both rods and reels. How about servicing your old equipment? No problem. We can do it quickly, easily, at a price you can afford. We also do custom hand-poured plastics through Western Plastics. Design the lure of your dreams and catch the fish that have been getting away. So come and visit us in Lakeside. We're at 12255 Woodside Avenue. Or you can visit us at anglersarsenal.com. If you need to call us, we're at 619-466-8355. See you there. Every serious angler knows that a quality hook is an important part of their arsenal. Gamakatsu hooks are made from high-grade carbon steel, specially heat-treated to make them light and extra strong, but not brittle. Gamakatsu ring hooks are made with a one-piece ring, no welds, no weak spots, a very smooth-moving ring. Gamakatsu offers a huge variety of hooks for all types of fishing. Live bait hooks, both light and heavy-duty, to four extra strong. Circle hooks, tuna hooks, ring hooks, tuna doubles, and many more. Don't waste your next fishing trip on a cheap hook. Get Gamakatsu hooks at your favorite tackle store now. It's hot. Time to get to that lake, river, or beach you love. Just remember, COVID is still with us, so plan ahead. Follow local public health guidelines and make sure everyone wears a life jacket. Life jackets save lives. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. Have you dreamed of experiencing the world-class in and offshore fishing off the exotic, tropical Pacific coast of mainland Mexico? Why not fish the sailfish capital of the world, Manzanillo, Mexico, with the folks you know and trust, Cedros Outdoor Adventures. In Manzanillo, you can find roosterfish, sailfish, marlin, tuna, dorado, and more, all within 20 miles of the shore. Our friends at Cedros Outdoor Adventures are offering an all inclusive travel package to Manzanillo that makes your winter fishing dreams a reality for a special price of $21.95. Cedros Outdoor Adventures is a name you learn to trust for safety and value, but these trips are available for a limited time only, starting this fall through March 2021. Learn further trip details and make your reservation at cedrosoutdooradventures.com or call at 619-793-5419 Hey bass fishermen who do you call for your bass boat insurance? Well, if you're not calling me at 1-800-BASS-BOAT for your boat insurance you're probably paying too much and may not have the coverage that you need 
1974, I developed the Bass Boat Program that is what all the pros use today. The reason? No depreciation or any partial claim for your hull, your big motor, your trolling motor, or your electronics until your boat's 10 years old. That's right. You only pay $250 to get your boat on the water for any partial claim, and we still pay a stated value replacement cost for your boat if you have a total loss. We're the only people in the industry that does that, and that's why we are the choice of the pros. So if you want the best, forget the rest. Just call 1-800-BASSBOAT. Call 1-800-227-7262 or just spell BASSBOAT. 1-800-BASSBOAT. I know there's too many letters, but the T is free and the call's on me. That's 1-800-BASSBOAT, the choice of the pros for BASSBOAT insurance. For more information, log on to 1-800-BASSBOAT.com. Rod Real Radio is brought to you by BajaBound.com Insurance Services. Are you driving to Mexico? You can buy and print out your Mexican auto insurance policy online in the convenience of your own home or office in minutes. Now with BajaBound.com's easy-to-use website. After printing your auto insurance, check out the BajaBound.com site. There, too, you will find great travel tips and information to help you get the most out of your next road trip south of the border. So this is an important fact to remember. Use BajaBound.com. It's the easiest way to find and get Mexican auto insurance. Hey, Stan, Wendy, and I, we want to welcome you back to Ron Real Radio. We also want to welcome our special guest for this hour, Mr. Al Kalen. And Al, thank you for giving up some of your Sunday to be with us. Yeah, it's great. I'm glad I could uh, be on your show. Hey, you know... Al, I know growing up there in the Imperial Valley, and you were mentioned it as a kid, there was a body of water there that you just loved uh, that, you know, you would play around with. That, that was like your testing ground for a long time. That was the Salton Sea. It always seemed like the Salton Sea was kind of an enigma to the California Department of uh, Fish and Game and now the Fish and Wildlife, uh, where before they, they never knew what fish to stock in there. I mean... As I understand it, they tried to stock trout. They tried to start strike uh, stripers, uh, largemouth bass, uh, uh, sturgeon. Uh, you know, they had crappie and panfish. Uh, they could they could never get it to take. Uh, one of the things I was amazed about is I never realized, even though we've done a show on the Salton Sea, just how huge that body of water once was. Can you? Can you tell us a little bit about the Salton Sea? Sure, I'd be glad to. You know, it, it's, it's part of the Sea of Cortez. Um, before the Colorado River was formed, um, the, the two continents are splitting, or the, the tectonic plates are moving, splitting California apart, and that's what causes the, uh, the Sea of Cortez uh, as it splits apart. Um, and so as the Colorado River formed, it, it dumped all kinds of silt into the Sea of Cortez and built a barrier across it. Uh, and that is what our area is now. It's below sea level because it's dried up. But over the years, uh, over millions of years, uh, as the Colorado River flooded at times, it would break its banks and flow in, flow downhill uh, below sea level and fill up. And it turned into a gigantic freshwater lake that went from 
downtown Palm Springs all the way to the delta of the Sea of Cortez, 150 miles, over 50 miles wide. And you can still see the, the old water line as you come down Highway 86 from uh, Indio uh, along the Salton Sea. You'll see a black line along the mountains, and that was uh, uh, the elevation of that sea or freshwater lake uh, many times when it filled up. It was about 40 feet above sea level because the delta was that high, so the water would fill up the sea and then flow through the delta, through the cattails and sloughs and all that. And then the river would change course, and um, the Colorado River would change course, and, and uh, no water would flow in, and, and it would dry up slowly. But 75% of the time over the millennia, this, this thing was full of fresh water. Um, and now that there's control of the, the river with dams, uh, it, it dried up in 2000 or, or 1902. Uh, they put in a canal gate uh, to bring water into the Imperial Valley and start farming there, which is all below sea level. All the water ran downhill, and that's what formed the Salton Sea. It's mainly farm runoff uh, from our fields. Uh, that fills up the sea nowadays, and since there's no outlet, uh, we have a tremendous amount of evaporation, six to seven feet a year from the high heat that we have. So it just gets saltier and saltier and saltier. Fishing game thought, well, let's stock it. This was in the 50s. So they went down to San Felipe and netted all the fish they could find and brought them, put them in a truck and brought them up, dumped it in the sea. And uh, I think there's over 40 or 50 different varieties uh, before that, I think in 1917, they they shipped uh, 20,000 silver salmon from San Francisco and turned them loose in the sea, never to be seen again. Uh, but uh, <laughs> the the three fish that that survived was the sargo and a croaker and, and the orange mouth corvina in the Salton Sea, and uh, they the the croaker and sargo created. Uh, uh, bait or food for the corvina and the thing just bloomed and it became the most successful fishery in the united states as far as you know pounds of fish per hour you could catch and the number you know the number of fish you could catch huge bait schools and huge schools of fish chasing the bait and if you had something that you could throw like a, a little kicktail in there you would it was just tons of fun or any Anything was uh, an early jerk bait worked really good. Yeah, I mean just a hook. I mean, <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> we good we used to make leaders. Well, some of our leaders we had gold plated hooks on. You know, that was the best uh, res salt resistant hook there was was gold plating. And sometimes you'd lose your bait, and next thing you know, you had another bite. You know, and and they'd just bite the gold color on the hook. Now, Al, I understand uh, the tilapia wasn't originally planted in the um, in the lake, but uh, other you, the farmers were, would use the tilapia to eat the vegetation in the canals. And then, when the canal started draining into the lake, that's how the tilapia got into the lake. Is is that true? Well, partially, yes. Um, the Imperial Irrigation District that. that delivers the water to all the farmers here in the Pearl Valley. It's 500,000 acres, uh, the largest irrigation district in the world. 
1,400 miles of, of uh, lateral canals to, to deliver the water to the fields. Um, they had a problem with hydrilla in the, in the 60s, and uh, it was plugging up their canals. And so the uh, state fishing game said, uh, tilapia can solve that problem. So the state planted the tilapia in the canals. Uh, unknown to them, tilapia don't like current, so they all washed down the hill and, and uh, <laughs> ended up in the Salton Sea. Um, and that, <laughs> that didn't work out so good. Um, and they said, well, don't worry, you know, the tilapia won't be able to survive in the salt water. Um, I happened to be uh, standing in the India Ocean on the east coast of Africa, 1971, and I'm thinking, those fish just look like tilapia swimming by me, you know, and they were, and that, that's where these fish came from. And so I thought, well, they're going to do real well in the salt sea, and as it turns out, they were the, the last thing standing, uh, and there's still tilapia in, in the salt sea, but they're, um, just this last year they were not able to reproduce, and so... Uh, that fishery was slowly declining, and, and the birds that fed on the uh, tilapia are starting to leave the area because there's no fish left or small fish that they can eat. It's just the larger fish. And I guess that's, that's a big concern, uh, uh, not only to the people in the area, but the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, that it was a bird refuge for millenniums, and it was the stop-off point from... South America to North America, and, uh, you know, the, the department wanted to make sure that there was a viable fish population in that lake so that it could support uh, that aviary. But, you know, tell us what's happening to the lake now and why. Well, um, we're, we're starting to, as of 2003, the agreement was signed uh, between... San Diego uh, County Water Authority and, and the Trail Irrigation District to transfer water from our fields over to San Diego so you people wouldn't run out of water. Um, and and we also, the Metropolitan Water District in L.A. also uh, transfers water also. Um, so when that happened, um, we didn't have the amount of runoff coming across our fields after we irrigated to, to maintain the sea at a constant level, so it became to, it began to recede, and uh, now as farming practices have changed, and, and the key word is, is uh, you know, farm with less water, uh, uh, conservation efforts, and all that. Well, we 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 use a lot less water than we have in the past. There, there's there's a whole new trend of new vegetables that we grow. I mean, when you go to the store now, there's a whole section of bagged lettuce that you buy ready to eat, and we grow that here mm -hmm. uh, during the winters. Uh, and so that uses less water, and we're starting to use more sprinkler systems and drip irrigation systems. Uh, I, I grow onions, and I use a drip system on that. We use about one-seventh amount of water that we had in the past. So all that means that less water is being used and less water goes in the salt sea, so it's starting to recede. And they're trying to figure out how to, how to solve that problem or how to maintain something that's viable for the birds and, and all the other things that live around it. 
and that's a real real problem they they're going to build some ponds at the south end of the sea uh, uh, the state has taken over that project and they're working on it now uh, but that's two or three years down the road before they even get started um, I, I think it's also important to remember that also all, although there's more birds that come through the Imperial Valley than anywhere else in the world during their migration. Over 400 species or anywhere else in the United States. Um, the, the 400 plus species that come through here, uh, not that many of them use the Salton Sea. I mean, there's a great deal of them do, and it's very important. But um, I think just as important is the agriculture and the water that, that uh, is used to irrigate those fields creates habitat in the drains, in the fields. There's food, water, habitat all around the Salton Sea, so the, the, the saltwater-living birds have the Salton Sea. All the rest of the birds have the million acres that are on both ends of the Salton Sea, the Coachella Valley, the Imperial Valley, the Mexicali Valley, the Palo Verde Valley. Um, so it's a tremendous a reservoir of food and habitat and roosting areas for the migration and uh, very important. So they're, they're trying everything they can to, to try to uh, find a happy medium uh, that they can work with the amount of water that's going to be available in the future, and that will probably decline um, uh, as, as conservation efforts increase. Uh, We've, we've more or less picked all the low-hanging fruit so far to conserve water, and so the next steps become very expensive. Um, but that's that's kind of a short uh, rundown of what's what's happening there. Well, are are we just stalling the inevitable? You you have indicated that the Salton Sea is is literally an ancient body of water and has been subject to many different levels at. Do you believe that were times in history where it just completely dried up and then it came back again, or are, is the water level now at a at a record low, and and this is why we have the problems we have there? Well, it's yeah. In the past, before man arrived here, or or the, the come, not, I'm talking not talking of the Native Americans, but when. Right. The first surveyors came across the area in 1855. They were looking for a, a route for a railroad in southern, a, a warm, warmer climate for a railroad that didn't get snowed in in the winter. And they came across the Pearl Valley and realized that, uh, wow, it's below sea level and the soil is beautiful for growing things. If you could get water there, you know, it'd be fantastic. Um, and and the, the engineer that was in charge of the survey crew he, he actually grew up plans of how to do it, and um, he he died before it all came to fruition. They had to pay for the Civil War and, and all those things. Um, but over the years, the sea has flooded before man came numerous times. You know, 75% of the time, like I said, it was full of water. Uh, we, the first water came into the Imperial Valley to irrigate with, and, 1903, in, in, in 1890, uh, there was a natural flood that filled the, the area up uh, to 100,000 acres. 
Now, that's compared to the current Salton Sea that's 236,000 acres. So it was a half the size in in uh, uh, 1890 as, as it is today. Uh, that's that's pretty remarkable. Yet when they, 10 years later, when they brought water in, it was dry because it had evaporated that, that quickly wow. um, because of the high heat that we, we have. Hey, Al, we've got to take a break. Is there any way I can ask you to stay on for one more segment? And I want to talk about... You know, you as a writer and your book. Certainly, I'd be glad to. All right. You're listening to Rod and Real Radio on AM540 or at rodandrealradio.com. Stay tuned. Stan, Wendy, and I and our special guest, Al Kalin, will be back after this break. Hi, Roland Martin here. I'd like to tell you a little about Gary Yamamoto and the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company. It all started with an idea, then a dream, and in 1983, the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company was formed. If you know Gary Yamamoto like I do, and I've known him since 1983, you know he has a passionate love for the sport of fishing. That love is only matched by his obsession to design and produce the highest quality soft plastic fishing lures on the market today. Every bait Gary makes is inspected by hand. Today, more than 2.5 million packages of bait are shipped worldwide. On behalf of Gary and his staff, he wants to thank his customers for thinking so highly of his products and wishing you the great success at the sport of fishing. Whether you fish for fun or fish the tournament circuits like I do, you'll honor Gary for making Gary Yamamoto custom baits a key part of your fishing experience. Take it from me, Roland Martin. When I'm in need of a go-to bait, my first choice is a Gary Yamamoto custom bait. Turner's Outdoorsman, California's number one fishing, hunting, and shooting sports retailer, now has 28 locations. Turner's is your one-stop shop for fishing tackle, hunting gear, and everything for shooting sports. Turner's offers a full selection and unmatched prices on the gear you need. Whether you're planning a fishing trip with the family or chasing giant tuna, Turner's highly skilled staff will make sure you have the gear for your next adventure. Visit turners.com to find a Turner store near you and be sure to join the Turner's Discount Club to get weekly ads and specials right to your inbox. Turner's Outdoorsman, your one-stop shop for all your fishing needs. Hi, this is Lori Heath. You may know me from some of the fishing boats out of San Diego. I want to talk to you about something that's really close to my heart. Did you know that when you donate blood, you're not only helping others, you're also helping yourself. Donating blood lowers the risk of heart attacks in men by more than 70%, lowers the risk of developing cancer, and helps you maintain a healthy liver. So donate blood to help someone else and to help yourself. If you can't donate, you can still make a difference with the financial gift. It's the best way to give back. Hook, line, and sinker. And for more information and to make a financial donation or an appointment, visit sandiegobloodbank.org. That's the sandiegobloodbank.org. And just to let you know, I'm also a blood donor. Gotta love California in the summer. Just remember, COVID is still with us. So if you're going to the water, plan ahead. Follow local public health guidelines and make sure everyone wears a life jacket. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways. 
Dan, Wendy, and I, we want to welcome you back to Rod and Real Radio, and we want to ask you to stay listening to Rod and Real Radio because in the coming weeks, we are going to have a great promotion that we're putting together with Connection to Cruise Travel Service to send two people to the Occidental Papagaya Lodge in beautiful Costa Rica. So stay tuned. We're putting the package together for you. And this summer, two of you just might be flying to Costa Rica. So stay tuned. That's a cool deal. Yeah. Hey, welcome back to Rod and Real Radio with our special guest, Al Kalen. Al, you know, I've known you for a long time. I didn't know that you were a writer. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got started in that. And tell us more about your new book, Outdoor Tales, how that came about. Well, I've always, you know, growing up, I I had a, a whole lot of fun as a kid. Uh, my folks owned a, a, one of the more popular hotels here in the valley. My father built it back in 1927. Um, it was the center of agriculture, and so I grew up in the hotel business. Uh, we also had a feedlot, so I, I grew up uh, running cattle, uh, in the feedlot as well as out on pasture. We also farmed, and so I did a lot of that. In between all that, everybody that worked for us seemed to like to fish or hunt, so I was always going with them. And and so, it, it you know, over the years, I, I had a lot of great experiences, a lot of them very funny. And um, so I'd tell these stories to people, and they would say, well, gee, you ought to put that in a book. I was talking to a, a one of the uh, out, uh, one of the writers for uh, uh, the local newspaper, and he says, "Well, why don't you send me a couple of stories, and we'll see if we want to start a column." So I did, and he did, and so I, I wrote for seven years of my experiences growing up around the valley, and um, after that, um, people said, "Now you need to put them in a book," and so. I finally did, and so it, it's called uh, Outdoor Tales, uh, and it, it's about life in the Imperial Valley growing up as a, as a kid, wrangling cattle, running up and down the halls in the hotel. Uh, when my my father was, uh, when, when I was born, my, my father had drinks on the house at the hotel, and then my brother was born a couple years later, and he rode his horse to the fourth floor. I, we, we never did find out how he got the horse down, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was kind of Western back then, and, and we just had all kinds of, of, of fun growing up, and so that's what my book is about, all these tales, stories of, of things I encountered while I was growing up. Some of them sound far-fetched, but uh, they, they actually did happen. You we know, had, uh, and share one with us, you know, because we've all done things in our youth that we look back at now and go how the hell did we ever make it this far you know and you got one story you'd like to share with us sure i you know i in the summertime uh starting when i was about 12 years old we, we ran cattle out on sugar beet tops they grow sugar beets here and after they harvest the beet and they cut the top off it has a lot of nutrient value to it and the the tops dry up and they, they look like just little brown things laying on the ground, but they're extremely high in, in, in nutrition. So we, we would run cattle on these sugar beet top, and sometimes they didn't harvest all the beets or the small beets didn't 
get harvested and were laying on top of the ground. And the cattle would uh, had to be checked twice a day because if they swallowed a beet and it got stuck in their throat, you had to rope them and ram a rubber tube that you lubricated with mineral oil down their throat and knocked the beet down in their stomach. And uh, they got a little bit upset when you did that. So, uh, and mainly there were Brahma steers, you know, that would withstand the high heat temperatures here. And we had um, two crews, three crews going around. And so uh, I was about 12, and, and uh, the, the feedlot foreman's son was the same age. And we'd ride around with an older cowboy, and, and he had false teeth, and he was always... Uh, taking them out and carving them with his knife because they didn't fit. And we go to the restaurant after we got through the morning run, and, and he'd sit in there and he'd steal napkins uh, to polish his false teeth with and when the waitress wasn't looking. And uh, one, one morning we got through with breakfast, and uh, uh, he, he went in to use the restroom, and, and uh, we went outside and got in the pickup, <clears throat> and we were looking on the dash, the pickup, and the whole dash was full of polygrip. Uh, old tubes of it uh, sitting in the sun and uh, I'm not saying who it was but somebody got the bright idea that maybe we could doctor up his newest tube of polygrip and so in, in the course of doctoring steers you, you always carried a, 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 an old chrome plated glass syringe that you injected the antibiotics and whatnot into the cattle with so we got the syringe and we went back in the restaurant and we found a bottle of Tabasco sauce and we stuck <laughs> some up in the syringe and stuck it into the tube of polygrip and squirted it in there, you know. And he came out and got in the pickup and had his false teeth in his hand and he got this new tube and he squirted it all over there and stuck it up in his mouth. And uh, pretty soon he started gagging and coughing and clawing and trying to get it out and jumping up and down in the pickup. <laughs> threw the door open, was hopping around the pickup, and he finally got it out, and he threw his false teeth as far as he could, and he got back in the car, uh, pickup. I just bought that, you know, and it's no good. It already went bad sitting in the sun. <laughs> of course, we, we never told him what we'd done. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> Al, we've got, about, we've got about three minutes left. You know, you're in the fishing lure industry, and you had the opportunity to fish in a lot of places around the world. Is there one place that stands out over all the rest? Well, I don't think you could beat, uh, you know, the, the Salton Sea. Um, but also, I grew up with a neighbor who had an old airplane, and we fly down to Mexico, San Luis Gonzaga, and we fish. Uh, he round up all the kids and the neighborhood and fly down there in this old 195 Cessna, uh, and we land and take the boat out with a guide and fish, you know, for hours. I, I actually caught one of the Totuaba that they had down there back uh, in 1960. The uh, thing weighed about 250 pounds. It's a gigantic fish. We had a lot of fun down there. But I understand uh, the fishing like it was down there is no longer like it is today. You know, no, today it's no longer like it was back then. We used to catch Corvina right off the shore and, and but uh, Salton Sea was, was a fantastic fishery, and I, I, that's probably one of my most popular ones. Well, Al, uh, your book, Outdoor Tales uh, by Al Kalin, uh, it's uh, published by uh, uh, 
try uh, Fully Impress out of Westmoreland. How can people get a copy of this book and catch up on some of the neat things you did uh, in your youth and uh, even beyond? Well, the easiest way is, is um, you, you can order it from a, a, a store in El Centro. Um, they have an email address simply at home uh, at gmail.com, uh, or you can call or text them at 760-970-4164, and they can um, send the book to you. They take MasterCard, Visa, American Express, PayPal, all, all the various methods of payment uh, to get a copy of the book. And uh, if, you, if you didn't get that all right now, you, you can go to rodreelradio.com and, and hit the archive page and, and replay this interview. Or better yet, uh, you can go on Facebook and befriend Al Kalin, and he's got that information there, plus a lot of the other things that he's doing. Uh, Al, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you spending some time with us. It, it's great hearing about Kalen Lures. Always like hearing about the Salton Sea, a tremendous fishery. I don't know if we'll ever see it be the way it was again. And then also I appreciate, you know, having the opportunity to read your book and share some of the experiences of, of you growing up. It's, it's a really fun read. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, I uh, look forward to uh, coming over to San Diego fishing with you one of these days. Boy, that would be great because we fish Mission Bay a lot. Nice thing about Mission Bay, San Diego Bay, they are still fishing great, and right now it's fantastic. And uh, uh, we look forward to hosting you and taking you on out. That will be a lot of fun. You think you can uh, at least scrounge together another package of uh, Kalen uh, five-inch grubs? Uh, chartreuse with uh, black flake was, uh, I think, the killer out here at one time. Well, I think it still works. You know, chartreuse with black flake was our number one selling seller worldwide. Oh, so, no kidding! Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, <clears throat> I know because when we uh, uh, started off here in Western Plastics, we were looking for um, uh, uh, a color that could fish the bay, and we knew it had to be chartreuse, but we wanted to make it a little different, and so we put a little gold neon on it. So back uh, in 1985. Chartreuse with gold neon was the color we came out with, but it was, uh, you know, one of those lures that uh, we were inspired by uh, your products, Al Kalen, uh, and I can't thank you enough for all that you've done for fishing, and I look forward to the next time we have an opportunity to talk with you again. Well, thank you for inviting me. All right, everybody, and that is all we have for this week. Again, our apologies for not being able to be live. We are doing our best to be on the air live next week. And again, stay tuned to our Facebook page. Just look up Rod and Reel Radio or go to roddenreelradio.com and follow the links so you can stay updated on our latest news and happenings. So for John, Stan, Wendy, Otto, Jonathan, everyone at the studio... A big thank you, and to everyone at home, thank you for your patience. John and everyone looks forward to being live again soon. But until then, everyone have a great week. Instead of just a wishing, 
Oh, yeah.